What operas are based on the Aeneid? Find out on this episode of the Met Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The answer. Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, written in 1689, Berlioz's Le Troyen, written in 1863, and Offenbach's La Belle Hélène, written in 1864. Virgil's Aeneid, perhaps the most famous adaptation of a Greek myth, tells the story of the Trojan War and later Aeneas's journey to Carthage. The appropriately epic nature of this poem, beginning with Troy's destruction and ending tragically with Dido's suicide, has been adapted in a myriad of ways by opera composers. In this podcast episode, join Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans in the third installment of our series, Opera and Greek Drama. So today we're looking at Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, and then we're gonna look at Berlioz's Le Troyen, which is one of my personal favorites. And then last, we're gonna look at another Offenbach, which is his La Belle Hélène. So just a little bit about Virgil's uh, Aeneid. So, it is a Latin epic poem, and it was written between 29 and 19 BC. And Virgil crafted the Aeneid from a, basically some disconnected tales about Aeneas that are in the Iliad, which is um, a Greek text of myths. Now, the Aeneid became a national epic following Virgil's death, uh, and this was for a number of reasons, most of them political. So one of them was that it tied Rome to the legends of Troy, which gave it Basically, it bolstered their society a little bit at a time when it definitely needed that. Um, it also explained the Punic Wars. And then it also glorifies traditional Roman values of virtue, for example, with Aeneas. Um, and finally, it legitimized the Julio-Claudian dynasty as descendants of Rome and Troy, basically giving them a historical connection that didn't necessarily exist. So. A little more about the Aeneid for you and a very long list of things that have come from the Aeneid in musical form. So firstly, the poem, this being Virgil's Aeneid, is composed of 12 books. Yes, there are many, many books. Uh, no opera manages to encompass all of them, let me tell you. So the first six follow Aeneas's wanderings from Troy to Italy, and those are the ones we're basically going to see most of the operas based on. And then the second half tells of the Trojans' final victory over the Latins. Um, in addition to other fabrications that Virgil added to his interpretation, uh, he ignored the 400 years separating the historical Dido and Aeneas in order to bring them together for their wonderful love story that has inspired so many wonderful musical adaptations. And there, so the, as I say over here, their imagined love story has inspired many, many libretti uh, across, as you can see, centuries. So now, as we jump towards our first example, which is Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, um, I just wanted to give you a little bit of history about opera in England, because I'm sure many of you are like, well, we never hear opera in English. Why is that? Um, so one reason for it is that of the main Western powers in the 1600s, England was the last to open its doors to opera. 
Now this happened for um, many reasons. Number one, there was a very strong tradition of spoken theater there, unsurprising seeing as they had Shakespeare. Um, for them, there was a bigger hurdle with the issue of operatic verisimilitude that we've talked about. They really didn't like the idea of people singing about their feelings constantly. Um, they also had another tradition, which is the tradition of the mask or the semi-opera. And so these are pieces that are more like what we saw with earlier operas, where they have more traditional musical pieces within them, like madrigals and things like that. Uh, and then the actual plot would be done in spoken spoken text or drama, so that it was more like a play with music as opposed to an opera. Um, another reason is that there was no strong monarch, uh, mon well, monarchical support after the strife of Charles I um, when he was taken off the throne. And so, as I've mentioned throughout this history, there often has to be, um, opera has long been associated with monarchs because of the fact that it represents a sort of, it has elitism, it suggests um, wealth and power, and so often these people would fund them in order to show off, no, it's not so much show off, but really to, in some ways, comfort their public by saying that, you know, I am strong, I have the ability to put these massive works on. Um, and so, but one of the few that do remain, that uh, is Dido and Aeneas, which we're about to talk about. So, Dido and Aeneas. The librettist was by, uh, is named Tate, and so he based the libretto on various translations, but m it all focuses on the fourth book of Virgil's Aeneid, which we'll see other, the other adaptations we'll look for stray beyond the fourth book. And so it ends up chronologi or chronicling uh, Aeneas's return from the Trojan War uh, when he stops at Carthage in North Africa. And there he begins a passionate love affair with Queen Dido until the gods send Mercury to bid the hero onward. And then when Aeneas leaves, as I'm sure many of you know, she kills herself out of grief and shame. Now, the libretto is extremely condensed in Dido and Aeneas and adapted to the style of the time. We've talked a little bit about this style, so I'm just going to uh, review some of the things I've mentioned before. So one thing to note is that key events are glossed over, specifically those are that are a little too um, gory or uh, sexual in nature for the people of the time. So one of them is Dido's death. They don't talk really about how she kills herself, if she poisons herself, throws herself on the fire. It's kind of just glossed over. She dies, perhaps out of grief. Hmm, much nicer. Um, and then Mercury, the god that sent to tell uh, Aeneas to go onward to Italy, in this version, of course, is sent by the witches because, as I mentioned before, in the 17th and 18th century, they loved sorcery and witches. So naturally, that would be the case here rather than any mythology. Um, and the last thing I wanted to note, just a little bit more history um, from this final point, is that the opera was written in the style of John Blow's Venus and Adonis. Now, John Blow was another composer uh, at around this time in England who was an English composer. Some of you may have heard of him before, although I can't actually say that I've listened to any of his operas throughout because it's not often you get to see them. Um, but what's interesting about this is that Purcell's Dionysus, rather than necessarily being based on Greek tragedy for its uh, format, uh, actually has more connection with this piece by John Blow, particularly the fact that it is also a three-act tragedy with an allegorical prolo prologue. And then both works use dance to artic articulate the story, which we're not gonna see much dance in it, but it's good for you to know that there is dance. Um, and then the chorus is a very has a very strong presence in both these pieces, playing parts around the characters that comment on what's going on and also talk about 
the things in the set that you, they might not have had enough money or uh, the means to make around them. So they really sort of illustrate the scenery for you. Um, all right. So how was this piece performed? Now, you'll love this answer because I say it a lot to you. We don't really know much about how Titanus was performed. But we do have one documented performance of it, which was actually, it took place in 1689 at a London girls' school. Now, you might be thinking, oh, okay, that's not a very professional performance for a composer that, you know, many of us actually know the name of. And that has a lot of scholars with question marks all around their ears, and they're probably right. So it is thought that it's probably not this school performance that was the first performance, even though it's the only one that we have documented. Number one, the librettist Tate was actually a very prominent figure, so it's unlikely that he would have you know, been paid very little or even done for, or composed it for free. <laughs> so it probably had another uh, benefactor at some point. And it's also unlikely that he would have collaborated on a major work at such a lowly venue, as I mentioned. So it is thought that it probably was meant for a court performance around 1697, and this was just before the another tragic sort of downfall, which was James II in um, English history, before he ended up going to France and uh, spending the rest of his days. So it's thought that James II at this time was maybe, Aeneas was supposed to be an allegorical figure for um, James II, because often operas were used as a way to glorify whoever the monarch was at the time. All right, I, I promise we'll get to some music in a second. I just want a little more historical tidbits about how this was performed. One thing I think you might find interesting, because I love talking about the way witches and sorceress were performed at this time, the sorceress is actually sung by a man, at least in the one performance we know of at this girls' school. Now, you may think, oh, that's strange. Maybe they just had nobody to perform it. Well, no, actually on the, restora the restoration stage, it was often that witches and sorceresses were almost always acted by men. Now, this is curious. It could have been for a number of reasons. There could have been, again, at this time, the reason that uh, witches and uh, sorceresses were often uh, used was because of the ideas about womanhood and deviant femininity were often embodied by these characters. So if we're doing that already, why don't we also have the woman embodied by a man so that she also seems grotesque, perhaps? That's a reason, maybe? Who knows? Um, another thing that I just wanted to mention is that Dido Aeneas was only then revived a few years later that we know of, in 1704, um, and then it disappeared until being rediscovered in the 18th century. So it's another one of these operas that has huge gaps in its performance, and so we don't know much about how it was performed, but we can imagine it now in a multitude of ways, which I will show you in the coming presentation. Um, so some of the things about the music I want you to know. You're probably thinking, okay, you've talked all about this, but what about Greek drama? Well, one thing I did mention was that the chorus plays a very prominent place in this opera, um, and often it's commenting on the events in the story or even interacting with the main characters, kind of like the Greek chorus might have done in the drama or, or in the Greek dramas of the past. So we can see a connection there, although we don't have any evidence that Purcell said he necessarily was trying to do that. And so I wanted to show you a clip here. This uh, is at the beginning of the opera, and we have Aeneas has come to Carthage, and we have Dido, who is still grief-stricken over her own husband's death, 
And she, of course, doesn't want to let anyone in, but the court wants her to be happy. And so they say, oh, you know, let's go into the grove and go on a hunt and you, you chill with Aeneas and maybe you'll want to open yourself to him. And she says, no, 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 I don't want to. But the chorus is a big factor in this scene trying to um, console her and be sort of her confidant, which is really close to how Greek drama, arguably the chorus acted in Greek drama. Uh, and so what you're going to see here first is we're going to have Dido. You'll see her speaking a little bit about how grief-stricken she is. And then her confidants are two people on the side who are soloists, but also kind of part of the chorus. And so they'll sing a little bit of music where they're trying to comfort her. And then after, the chorus will be brought in. So one of the delightful things about Dido and Aeneas is that it is delightfully short. It's about an hour um, because of how condensed it is. But one might also think about Greek drama in the way it was. Uh, we've seen one of the themes has been simplicity and directness. And you can see there, just, it moves quite quickly. So, um, so more about Greek drama in this. Uh, one of the things that uh, distinguishes Dido actually from its predecessor, which is Venus and Adonis, is that it had, Venus and Adonis, at least, has practically no arias, unlike Dido and Aeneas, which tends to gravitate towards those. Now, this would be an argument for saying how this is maybe not so much like Greek drama, which, as we've mentioned, is more about focusing on words and music, um, which often in arias, what happens is that we get a little too lost in the music as opposed to the words. But I'm sure many of you know the most famous piece, if you know of Dido and Aeneas, which is Dido's Lament. A few things I just want to say about what make this lament so unique. Um, one thing is it's a lament, uh, which is, for those of you who don't know, a lament has a chromatic bass line, and then over top of it, the singer sings. For those of you, uh, a chromatic scale goes in semitones, so rather than being a scale which is, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, a chromatic scale would be, oh. So it's much more, it has all the notes that are on the piano, uh, but it also has, a, if you use the whole chromatic scale, it has a, a much more, um, a much more of a, a less happy mood to it, shall we say? And so it works greatly for the lament. Now the lament, what's interesting about it, while I'm still on the topic of Greek drama, 
is that it actually traces back to Monteverdi, which, as we know, is one of our first pieces that uh, at least is documented to be associated with the Florentine Camerata and their ideals of Greek tragedy. So that's an interesting connection, nonetheless. Um, but by this time, I will note the lament, the lament uh, form has become rather cliche. But what's so magical about Purcell is that he's done it in a way that has really refreshed it about uh, almost a century later. So let's listen to that a bit. Now, what we're going to see here, we've come to the end of the opera. Aeneas has um, been tricked in this version by the sorceress, and he is now heading off to Italy. Of course, in the actual myth, the gods are saying, it's time to go and fulfill your destiny. But we will stay in the realm of Dido and Aeneas for now. And what happens is that uh, Dido then decides she's too overwhelmed, and so she takes her own life or perhaps is grief-stricken and gives it up. Despite the simplicity of that chromatic bass line, it seems to constantly develop over the course of the piece, which is surprising for this period. Uh, I wanted to bring your attention to some other performances just because of the, um, the sort of pathos in a way that this aria has taken on in current culture. Um, a lot of 
singers with larger voices have come to sing it, despite the fact some of you may know we, we imagine that this would have been sung originally in a more intimate setting and perhaps not had a very large voice mezzo-soprano or soprano performing this role. And so one of these performers is Jesse Norman, uh, following the tradition that was uh, not necessarily begun by, but also made famous by Kirsten Flagstad in the 50s when she did a recording. Um, and for those of you who don't know, these are two Wagnerian singers. So in many ways, the largest voices you can imagine singing this piece that is a Baroque piece. Um, and it works in some ways because just the, uh, of the epicness of the piece itself. So I just wanted to play you a little bit of Jesse Norman's performance. Jesse Norman's voice obviously sounds very different from the one we listened to before. And so, to my ear, at least, it also sounds like the orchestra might be a little, a little larger. So this giving this more, what we think of opera now, a very different thing from what they thought of it in the Baroque period. Um, all right, let's uh, onwards and upwards, shall we say. So I just wanted to say a little bit about a figure called Pietro uh, Metastasio, who was a librettist at this time. and. Many at the, uh, and this time being 1698 to 1782, so just after Purcell. And he was seen as being a revolutionary librettist who, although he didn't compose music, his libretti offered new opportunities for the way opera composers would then compose music. And he created basically a really popular formula for how Italian libretti were written and that was copied by a lot of other people because it was seen as the way in which opera should now be written. And essentially what this was, it was essentially pastoral in nature. Um, so the plots often were dealing with nature and myths and things of this nature. Um, and then it also had a very modern focus on emotions um, rather than just being about um, allegorical characters. And his first success, which I thought was really interesting and I didn't know about, was called uh, Didone, Abandonata, which is you know, Dido abandoned. So it's the same plot of, from, of Dido and Aeneas. Um, and what's interesting about this plot, I thought at least, was that it, for him, a lot of his ideas about libretti were, were based on 17th century Aristotelianism. Um, and so the plot was often, this plot was a particular draw at the time because it was a plot about morality. So particularly Aeneas, his pleasure for Dido, but then at the same time choosing in the end his virtuous mission for um, bringing his people to Italy. Um, and then when Dido fails at the end, she takes her life rather than goes on. This was seen as very, also very virtuous. Um, and then this was in combination with a, a love plot that was seen as part of Racinian tragedy. Um, and this mixture worked for a lot of people at the time. Um, of course, we'll see later, this, he also, Metastasio, despite condensing what the plots often were before his time, although Dido and Aeneas is an exception, 
Um, but he still loved his subplots, and he loved also a little bit of sorcery as well, which we'll find, coming back to a familiar character from one of our last lectures, um, Gluck would uh, get rid of a lot of this stuff, seeing it as too much. We need to go back to very few characters, less servants, less love plots. Uh, so now we're moving on to our next figure, uh, which is Hector Berlioz, who wrote uh, Les Troyens. So a little bit just about Berlioz and his flirtation with opera. I'm sure many of you know him from uh, particularly concert programs because he was majorly an orchestral composer. Uh, his Symphonie Fantastique, many of you may have seen. Um, and what's interesting about his symphonic works is that they're very uh, driven by narrative, uh, which at this time in the early 19th century was not really a thing for the symphony. It was usually just about form rather than having a story along with it. And with his Symphonie Fantastique, there was a story about his, well, it was based on his own love, but it was sort of a fantastical reimagining of that. But part of his fascination with uh, drama is that really he wanted to be an opera composer. And although, unfortunately, he had some opportunities and not all of them came through, so he's not remembered in our memory as uh, a super successful opera composer. Many might say otherwise with his Les Troyens, but we'll see that it never was performed in its, in its entirety in his lifetime, unfortunately. Um, anyway, so a few things. So he did write five operas, um, and they were performed at major institutions in Paris. Particularly, we've talked a little bit about the opera. No, yes, we did. We talked a little bit about with Gluck, and we'll talk a little bit about, uh, more about it today. Um, and I just wanted to note that one of his most admired predecessors also wrote opera, and that was Gluck. Uh, there's some other names there that you might know. One is Weber who wrote uh, Der Freischutz, as well as Spontanini, uh, who is an Italian composer that also came to France and did operas like La Vastale. He was also part of the resurgence of classical plots, uh, particularly Greek plots. Uh, those are operas I wish we could see more often. Um, one thing I just wanted to note is that at the beginning of the 19th century, operatic success was the principal way that a composer was measured. I know we like to think back on Beethoven and say, oh, but the symphony was the greatest of all forms. That is not true. That is something that has been rewritten over time. And even Beethoven wanted in, as we know, on the opera success with his Fidelio, which never really came to pass once again in his own lifetime. Um, but one of the reasons for this is that the opera had, yes, the most money to go into performance, but also the most possibility of getting money in the future because of the revivals. Not that you would get the money, but you could go at this time because copyright was not a thing yet and until really at the end of Verdi's career where you automatically got money if someone performed your opera again. But rather, you would be hired to help produce the opera. And that's how you would continue to get more money from a single piece rather than having, having to compose more. Um, so a little more about Gluck, who seems to be a, a sort of specter in today's lecture, clearly. Uh, but one thing I want to note is that Gluck's uh, Iphigenie en Troride, which we'll talk about in the next lecture, was one of the first operas that Berlioz saw, perhaps beginning his love for uh, Gluck. And then by the middle of the century, actually Berlioz was one of the leading experts on Gluck in France. And this was a time when composers were also scholars, um, where now it's a little more reified. And so he was a leading figure that people went to in order to perform these works. And they indeed did in 1859, when Berlioz was chosen to adapt Orphe um, for, which is, we talked about um, Orpheus, or, or goodness, Orfeo e Eurydice, which is the Italian 
version of um, Gluck's opera. It was then brought to, to France. Uh, Gluck did bring it, and then it vanished for a while, and then Berlioz uh, brought it back. And one of the things, that things had to be changed, because in, uh, in France, they really didn't like the castrati, and we know it was composed for a castrato, so that immediately had to be changed. And actually, another French composer who was very famous at this time, which is Giacomo Meyerbeer, um, some of you may know him, he was sort of the creator in some ways of grand opera. He suggested a very famous mezzo-soprano at this time, which is Pauline Viradot. And so what, in the end, what happened is Berlioz recomposed the work in some ways so that she could sing it. Um, another issue was that concert pitch at this time had risen. And so, uh, number one, a countertenor would not have been able to perform it, and also the French would not allow Castrati to be on their stage anyway, even if countertenors were floating around. Um, and then also Berlioz rearranged and transposed it once it was decided for a woman. Another interesting thing um, with my little historical tidbits that I keep bringing you on, uh, he also, because of his reverence for Gluck, he brought some of the original music back into, uh, the original music being from the Italian score from Vienna, back into the French version, which had been omitted when Gluck adapted it for French tastes. Um, a little bit more about Berlioz and Virgil. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was reading about Berlioz is that apparently he was really, really obsessed with Virgil's Aeneid. He could cite passages in Latin from memory, which I didn't know before. Uh, and. Uh, another thing I didn't know was that initially he considered Virgil to be too epic a, a piece for operatic setting, um, perhaps because it was so long and then he had to cut out many bits. But another thing was he was very worried about a shoddy production that would not do justice to the uh, dramatic text. Um, okay, so this brings us to Les Proyens, which, as I mentioned, is in five acts. It's obviously by Berlioz. Something you may not have known is that he wrote the text. Uh, Wagner was not the only person to do this for his operas. Berlioz thought it was also very important to have this unity between the words and the music, which, as we know from our last lectures, is an important thing with Greek tragedy. Uh, a little history about how this opera came to be performed. As I mentioned, it was never performed complete in Berlioz's lifetime. Uh, it was actually performed in two halves <laughs> because it was seen as too long. So there was. The uh, first two acts are based on book two of the Aeneid, and then the last three acts bring us back to Car Carthage with Dido and Aeneas, and that part was in formed another opera. And so they were often either performed on two different nights, or a producer would just want to perform one of them. But then it wasn't until uh, 1890 that it was uh, performed in its uh, complete form. And part of this was because actually Berlioz finished it in 1858, but usually when an opera composer at that time would compose an opera, they would do so because they were brought by an opera company to do it. So they were, someone said, you know, I want you to compose based on this text, I have this libretto that I've already bought, turn it into an opera, right? And so they would already have a production set up, but this was sort of a, a I guess a Berlioz passion project, and so he started composing it without a commission, and the commission he really wanted, of course, was the opera, because they had the most money, the most resources, the possibility of an amazingly spectacular set. And after some of his previous failures at the opera, I don't know if they were willing to uh, bank on this piece being a success. So it did, not, um, it did not happen there, unfortunately. But it would happen many, many times 
later in history, as we'll see. Uh, so a few things, because I don't know if many of you have sat in on my, my lectures where I always love to talk about French Grand Opera and tell you all the quirks about it, but I will quickly rehearse it here. So in Grand Opera, we often have, uh, well, usually it's demanded that there are five acts. So it makes it quite long usually, although the acts can sometimes be shorter as a result than what we're used to in an Italian opera that has two acts. It also has to have a ballet. Another big thing about a, 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 a Grand Opera is this tension between the public and the private. They love to have the chorus in, in a way that is perhaps um, linked to Greek tragedy. It, uh, having the uh, chorus come in on uh, the private events that are happening. So something will be happening with our, our, our love triangle or perhaps just our love duo in this case. And then of course there'll be a, a moment where it all becomes public and everyone has to have a comment about it because now it's linked to politics and will you know will Paris be blown up at the end or something? Oh, who knows? It's all based on this love triangle that's happening. So this sort of intricate link between these plots and having that scene where all of that explodes was essential. And the last thing, of course, is spectacle. You have to have this moment that people walk away thinking, oh, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. This was the main criticism by Wagner against Meyerbeer, where he was saying spectacle without cause, and that was against uh, Meyerbeer's uh, Le Prophète. Okay, so things, moving back to Greek tragedy. Uh, one of the things that really knits this piece together, despite being this long, gargantuan piece, is thematic recall. And some of the, another word for this might be obviously a leitmotif, which we've talked a little about and we will talk about more today in showing some more examples. Um, but this also exists in this piece from 1858. Uh, and Berlioz, one of the themes that Berlioz brings back throughout the piece is the Trojan March. So we hear it first um, at the end of act one. So the piece starts where we've, we've come to Troy and uh, the people are very excited because they think they've won the war, because the, the people they're battling against have retreated, and they've sent them this wooden horse, as we all know, as a gift. And they're thrilled about that. And of course, Cassandra, who we're seeing here, is, who is a prophet, basically says, you should burn this horse. This is a terrible thing. Uh, but then there was uh, an omen by the gods with a sea monster. And so naturally, they were like, no, we can't burn it. It's a gift. We must treasure it. Uh, which we know will end terribly. Now, Cassandra is, during this whole act, which is basically the, the bringing on of this horse onto the stage, um, Cassandra is saying, woe is me. This is a terrible thing that's about to happen. So the first time we hear the Trojan March is, in some ways, slightly ironic, because it's in, in a major key suggesting triumph. But of course, this is the moment when they're bringing on their doom uh, onto the stage. What we're gonna, so immediately here, Cassandra is in the front talking about her concerns, and we're gonna hear the Trojan March in the orchestra. And then we're gonna hear how it's gonna come back a few times throughout the opera in different scenes. So as we know, 
we all know what the Trojan horse is going to do. People are in it. They come and they defeat Troy and the people who are left over, they leave. So then they go off to Carthage. And the moment when they enter Carthage, this is now we're in Dido's domain. We, as they are introduced to Dido, we hear the Trojan march, but now in the minor, suggesting they have failed. And this is thinking woefully upon what happened in the, uh, in the last act, which is act two. We're now in act three here. Uh, and then we hear it again, but now back in the major. So now Dido and Aeneas have fallen in love. They've mysteriously gone into a cave, and who knows what happened in that cave. Uh, and then at the end, Mercury comes and tells Aeneas that we must now go back on to Italy. He tells Dido. She is grief-stricken, of course, and so we're going to hear her last note of saying, well, I mean, you can see what she says. I curse you, your gods, and you. And then all of the rest of the army that is left from Troy comes out in excitement screaming Italy as they go and get in their boats to sail off. And while they're screaming that, underneath it in the orchestra, you're going to hear the Trojan march in the major again. <laughs> I guess I want to reiterate why thematic recall is so important toward our journey talking about Greek tragedy. And this is because not only does it knit together the drama and give really uh, strong structural bonds between what's happening on stage and also the music, but it also suggests this idea of the chorus, who is normally around in Greek traditional Greek drama or tragedy, um, commenting on the action, now the orchestra takes on that function, right? The idea that it's in the minor immediately tells us, with knowing having to say it in the words, exactly how the characters on stage feel about their past foibles, for example, with the Trojan March example that I choose here. So another one I want to explore here is a little more subtle and took me a while to hear, so I'm please do not be embarrassed if you cannot hear it immediately. Uh, but this is a very important uh, a theme that recurs throughout this piece, and it's the fate rhythm is what a lot of scholars call it. And this happens, apparently it happens in the first chorus, um, which I even can't hear in the first chorus. It's very subtle, and what happens with this rhythm over the course of the opera is it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and by stronger I mean louder and more present. And then at the end of the opera, when Dido throws herself on the funeral pyre, it's at its most loud or most present. and the idea being that fate has come to pass, basically. So anyway, it apparently appears in the opening chorus, although I've yet to pinpoint it without a score. And then in the next scene, this is when Cassandra first is talking about the vision she's had and saying that her wedding is no longer going to happen with her love because, of course, Troy is going to be destroyed. And what we'll hear is when she's talking about that, right at this point that I've put out, 
in the orchestra, in the strings, bumping along. There is a rhythm that goes, uh, it, well, it goes bop, bop, one, two, da, bop, 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 bop. It's subtle in this scene. I promise it'll be really obvious in the next video, but please do not be worried if you do not hear it in this scene. But I felt like I had to tell you that it happens at the very beginning of the opera so that you understood the arc that happens here. Could you hear it? <laughs> yes, it was very subtle, but it was that Alright, the next one will be really obvious, I promise. You'll be like, oh, of course. Uh, so now we have come to the end of the opera. Dido is now burning all of Aeneas's things because he's left, and then she unexpectedly at the end will stab herself and throw herself on the pyre. Uh, and so what we're first gonna hear is we're gonna you're it's gonna be really obvious you're gonna hear the rhythm first. And then there's an interesting little uh, transformation that happens a little later in the scene, so I just want to play a little bit more of it for you, where it gets very chromatic, but it almost sounds like she's weeping, but it has the same rhythm, um, but doing a different little melodic fragment. We've explored the subtleties of Le Troyen now. I promise we'll do easier things. So one thing I want to bring your attention to is the lavish pantomime that happens in Le Troyen. This is often excerpted in for orchestras because it's completely orchestral. This is, uh, it, it seems kind of like a prelude in some ways, but it's longer than a prelude and also has uh, staging that's associated with it, but I digress. At the beginning of act four, there's the royal hunt, and this is the moment when Dido and Aeneas fall in love. And uh, for Berlioz, he does it in a way where he doesn't even uh, compose any singing for it. So what happens is we open on some nymphs lazing in a pool, 
gives us this pastoral feeling, which again has a, a strong tradition with Greek tragedy. Then we have some hunting horns, which scares them off as the hunters enter. A storm gathers, which you're gonna hear in the orchestra. And then we hear horns and lightning and wind. And then it's during this that perhaps it's not actually staged in the uh, Met production, which I've been showing you thus far, but someone could stage where Dido and Aeneas come and take cover in a nearby cave, as is talked about at least in Virgil's Aeneid. And then the nymphs cry Italy, trying to uh, warn Aeneas that he's supposed to move on. But of course, we know what's happening in the cave. The uh, two lovers are consummating their love for one another. And then the storm, storm subsides, and then the rest of the act is them seeming, seeming much more amorous for one another. And then it leads to the most one of the most wonderful duets at the end of this act. But we're not going to actually explore that. But I'm just teasing you with it at this point. I do want you to hear this, though, because it's a really spectacular piece of music. Uh, and what's so interesting about it is the way that Berlioz, in, in, in a way that's 50 years before Strauss, really depicts what's going on on stage in the orchestra. Because you're going to hear the weather, you're going to hear, I mean, you're not going to hear Dido and Aeneas, but <laughs> you're going to, the weather almost suggests what they're doing in the cave. Anyway, I'll let you listen and you can imagine Aeneas entering the cave.
can kind of get an idea of the storm, of sort of thrusting that's happening in the bass. Um, I mean, 19th century opera composers can sometimes be a little bit crude, but we definitely reach the um, epitome of sex music with uh, De Rosenkavalier uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, which is absolutely delightful. Now, I, I couldn't talk about uh, Les Troyennes and not talk about the how the horse is done, because I think that's everyone's question the moment the opera starts is, what are they going to do with the horse? Um, so I mean, the being designed and intended to be performed at the Opéra, you can imagine that uh, Berlioz had fantastic ideas for how the horse would enter the stage. But what's interesting is that it seems that he didn't even trust the Opéra to do the horse in a spectacular enough manner, because what he does is he used some, um, he basically composes the scene for antiphonal offstage horns. So there's three stage bands, at least it calls for, um, and the Met production that we've been watching does use them to give this idea of the horse coming from different directions, to give this epic nature of it. And at least as Berlioz wrote it, the horse never it doesn't have to appear on stage. The idea that it's sort of just off stage and everyone is oohing and aahing at it because we're focused on Cassandra standing in front of us. Now, most productions don't do it this way because it's much more exciting to show the horse, especially with the technology we have now. But I still think it's, it's really interesting how Berlioz plays with space using uh, instruments in order to create this epic nature to the stage. Um, and I think, again, I think there could be a, a, a connection made here with Greek tragedy, with the idea of how voices or how different instruments can be used to suggest um, things that are happening on stage that they didn't necessarily have the means to make.
one more thing I wanted to talk about Berlioz's opera is that although Les Troyennes is technically a number opera, so it has duets, it has arias, which Wagner would break down a little more in the future, um, he's less interested in traditional recitative and aria than in freer structures. And one of them is monologue, which I've listed here. Um, but there's also scenes and pantomimes. We saw pantomime, obviously, with the, um, the royal hunt. Um, but what's interesting is how the narrative is generally set down over primor primarily orchestral moments. So, for example, the scene we just, we just watched where clearly the uh, interesting melodic fragments were in the orchestra. They were not in the singer's voice, which can often be off-putting for a lot of people watching this opera because it's not a traditional um, aria and then scene, which we're used to in other French operas of this time. And this is mainly because our, our strong connection here with Greek tragedy is that Berlioz believed in the union of music and poetry held great power over, uh, over his listeners. And this is one of the main reasons, as I mentioned, that he wrote his own libretto. And I think one of the best examples for showing this is bring, brings us back to the final scene with Dido. Instead of writing a grand aria for Dido, such as what we saw with Dido's Lament with Purcell, which one might expect at a, a moment like this, which is the end of the opera, and clearly a moment for the soprano, or mezzo-soprano in this case, to show off, um, we don't have that. We have a, a moment where, again, the orchestra sort of takes the main melodic material, and she sort of glides over top of it.
I wanted to talk briefly about the performance history of this opera just because, as I've mentioned, it has been so spotty throughout since its original creation. One of the first serious revivals that happened was actually in 1957. And this was done at Covent Garden. And this was done by Raphael Kubelik, who was uh, a big supporter of Berlioz and reviving his works. Uh, and then, of course, there is the 1973 production at the Metropolitan Opera, which is when the opera premiered at the Met and was a big deal because they did the entire opera. It was an even bigger deal because it was supposed to have both Shirley Barrett as Cassandra and Krista Ludwig at the time as um, Dido. But in the end, uh, Krista Ludwig fell ill. And so what happened in a momentous occasion, which is one of the first times that a singer has sung both roles, was that Shirley Barrett then took over at last minute to perform both roles at the premiere and throughout um, the run. And this was apparently televised. Um, I mean, it was televised. Um, and then the last thing I want to note is that Les Troyennes was the opera that opened the new uh, Opéra Bastille in Paris. All right, I wanted to end with a this lecture with a little bit of fun. So while Berlioz was trying to mount a very serious opera with Les Troyennes, um, Meliac and Halevi, uh, prepared, these are the librettists of Offenbach, prepared a satire based on Helen of Troy. So this is before um, the this is before the, the war on Troy. And this was hoping to repeat the success of their Ophé aux Enfers, which we explored last time. Uh, so one thing, uh, just a little social context for the Aeneid and why this piece caused such a stir is that the Aeneid, as I mentioned, well, I mentioned that it became a national epic, and this was partially because the Aeneid was written at a time of political and social change in Rome. And so the Republic had fallen and was in the society was war-torn at this time, and so the faith in the greatness of Rome was faltering. And so the new emperor, which was Augustus Caesar, um, made the Aeneid a national epic to reintroduce traditional Roman moral values. And so, and this was because Aeneas was a man devoted to loyalty and to his country, which was very important at this time when people were not believing in the greatness of Rome as much as they once had. Uh, so, La Belle Hélène, I have to tell you a bit of the plot. Um, so this is an opera bouffe in three acts. Paris is promised to Helen by Venus, as we know. But she is already married to Melanus, the king of Sparta. Paris arrives disguised as a shepherd and wins another contest and fakes a prophecy in order to get rid of Helen's husband. In act two, Paris comes to Helen at night. Helen, believing she is dreaming, has sex with Paris. <laughs> Melanus unexpectedly returns and finds them, but Helen claims it is his fault for interrupting and not letting her know that he was coming back. Um, Paris departs, vowing to return and finish his job. In act three, Venus retaliates for the treatment of her protege, Paris, and basically makes everyone amorous in the society, to the despair of the kings who want this to end. A high priest of Venus arrives in a boat, explaining that he has to take Helen as a sacrifice to solve the problem. Initially, Helen refuses, but she realizes that the priest is actually Paris in disguise, and so she consents, and off they go. Uh, so one of the scenes that is quite humorous from this is a scene called, um, oh goodness, uh, 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 la pomme. So it, it's a play on words. I just, so, um, so a man with an apple is the translation in English. And what's interesting about this scene is that it, this is after Paris has won his first contest. And then 
Helen sings this aria, which is a mocking aria of a typical operatic ensemble. Uh, I don't think I have to explain much. I think you're going to get it. So I'm just going to let you enjoy it and be surprised. <laughs> I mean, for the, you, I heard some of you laugh, so I think you got it. But the idea here is it's making fun of a typical Rossinian moment when he would have these freeze scenes when someone was revealed as a surprise. So, I mean, he was revealed as Paris, right, and not the shepherd. So she was shocked. And so what happens is they say four words over an entire piece, and then everybody comments in the background as the singer, you know, does lots of um, ornamentation and things like that. Uh, I also wanted to show you the uh, the scene when Paris comes into her bedroom. So I'm going to do a brief, the end of that duet when uh, she believes that she's dreaming. And so Paris, in some ways, takes advantage of her, I suppose. But Helen does want to marry him, so that's questionable. But uh, we have that, and then you'll see her husband come on stage at the end of it. Um, and one thing I wanted to note historically is that actually when this opera premiered in England, this scene was cut out because they thought it was too erotic. It was too scandalous what happened on stage. So one can only imagine how the, how the plot made sense anymore, but that's all right. So here's a bit of this scene. Oh, <laughs> 
was Guild lecturer and audience favorite Matthew Timmermans discussing the fascinating topic of Greek drama and opera. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.